0: Welcome to episode 141 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today we get to speak to retired agent Bill Kinane, who served with the FBI for 34 years. He spent most of his career in San Francisco, but also served in the Seattle, New York and Chicago Divisions, and the Moscow office of the FBI. In this episode, Bill Kinane reviews the five years he served as the assistant legal attache, (ALAT) and the legal attache, Legat, of the FBI's office in Moscow, Russia, the first ever official bureau presence in the country. The office was opened at the invitation of Russian President Boris Yeltsin, Bill Kinane established a working relationship with the Ministry of Internal Affairs and the Security Service of the Russian Federation, FSB. At the time, current Russian President Vladimir Putin was the head of the FSB, and Bill Kinane met with him and his team on a weekly basis. The Moscow Ligat office handled major investigations with a Russian nexus. Russian organized crime, money laundering, kidnapping of Americans in Russia, extortion, terrorism, movement of nuclear materials, and human trafficking. Bill Kinane, who has an advanced degree in Russian area studies and learned Russian and Serbo-Croatian from the Defense Language Institute at Monterey, California while serving in the Marine Corps, also provides a brief history of the period. Upon his retirement, Bill Kanain worked as a contract employee in Ukraine, Belarus, and Albania. He later joined Guardsmark Corporation as a senior vice president. He now splits his time between California and Oregon. I am recording this intro on Election Day, November the 6th, and it is fascinating to re-listen to my interview with Bill and hear about how, quote-unquote, democracy works and Russia. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. And I'll let you know now that I'm going to follow it up next week with another interview about Russia. My guest will be former FBI agent Asha Rangappa. Before we get to the interview with Bill, I just have a few things. First of all, congratulations to Marina Wadik a listener from Austria, who is the winner of the book title contest. She gave the suggestion of the FBI in film and fiction. And I loved it. I've been saying the FBI in books, TV and movies forever. And the FBI in film and fiction sounds better and will look better on the cover of a book. My new book, which will be coming out early next year, is now officially titled the FBI in film and Fiction." a training manual for armchair investigators, debunking, cliches, and misconceptions. Thanks, Marina. We'll get that hardcover copy of the book out to you as soon as the FBI and film and fiction is published. And thank you to everyone who submitted a title suggestion. There were some really great ones. But guess what? You still have a chance to win something. How about an FBI holiday holiday? Ornament and other cool FBI and podcast swag. So, check out my November Reader Team Digest for more information. I sent out the November issue on Friday, so if it hasn't shown up in your email inbox yet, please check your spam filter. I hate when that happens. If you're not yet a member of my Reader Team, you can join on my website, jerrywilliams.com. On my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author, or if you're listening to this on a podcast app, in the description, you'll find a link where you can also join my reader team. This month, I'm celebrating my 10-year anniversary from retiring from the FBI. And in my November reader team email, I share some photos from my career. I'll talk to you more about books at the end of the interview. But for now, here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Bill Canane. Hi, Bill.
1: Hi, uh, Jerry. Good afternoon.
0: Bill, I am thrilled that you accepted my invitation to come on the show because Russia's in the news, Russian interference is in the news, and the FBI is in the news. And when it comes to those three topics, you are the go-to guy because you spent five years in Moscow working for the FBI.
1: Well, I guess I should start from the beginning. The uh, genesis of, of our uh, mission there to open the League at occurred in 1994 when uh, President Boris Yeltsin came to the United States to meet with President Clinton. And he told President Clinton about all the problems he was having in the transition from communism to capitalism. And all the problems that were ensued regarding organized crime, money laundering, things that didn't occur during the Soviet period, because there was no money to steal. And he told uh, President Clinton and his advisors that it was a serious problem. And Clinton said, well, you should have the FBI in Moscow. There's FBI agents all over the world in legal attache positions. And um, we should put some FBI agents in Moscow to help you out. So that was the, um, the, how this all all started. In the I guess it was the summer of 1994 by the fall of 1994, uh, I and Mike DiPertoro, who was the legat, I was the ALAT in the beginning. We arrived in, in Moscow in September. Unfortunately, nobody knew we were coming for all intents and purposes. The Bureau and the State Department hadn't worked out the whole arrangement, and so there was no office space, no housing. It was a little rough in the beginning, plus the fact that when Mr. Yeltsin came to, to Washington, he brought with him a, a very senior general, uh, Mikhail Konstantinovich uh, Yegorov, who was head of organized crime control in Russia. And shortly after we arrived there, a group of Chechens took over a village in southern Russia and, and took a couple of hundred hostages. And General Yegorov went down there. To resolve the problem, he killed all the hostage takers, but also killed all the hostages. He was uh, summarily fired, and Yegorov was the uh, individual who was supposed to be our main contact that was going to open up all the doors for us in Russia. So when we got there, we kind of were making cold calls (laughs) to let them know we were there, who we we were, and uh, what the
0: agreement had been. So President Yeltsin welcomed you. But what about everybody else?
1: Well, no, the word didn't, uh, neither on the American or the Russian side, did anyone know we were really coming. And then on the American side, of course, you know, everybody was wondering, there's FBI agents in the building, what's going on? You know, <laughs> in other words, they, you know, it, it, it had the reverse effect. But anyway, we, we got off to a rough start. But uh, I will tell you that uh, five years later, I had a tear in my eye when I left. It was an incredible journey.
0: I can only imagine. So, when you first get there, where were you supposed to be working?
1: Well, you know that the, uh, the American embassies house all uh, all kinds of agencies. I mean, they're especially during this period in Russia, where r- Russia was uh, moving from uh, communism to a democracy and from communist communist economy to capitalism. So that every imaginable uh, agency was in the embassy. So we we thought we'd have an office in the embassy, which they eventually accommodated us. And also, we needed a special office because we were handling, you know, classified information. So we were not, you know, it, it was a little little more more difficult. Um, and then they eventually found housing for us in the embassy because of the security ramifications of of uh, of our of our job. Now before we arrived there in 89 and in 93 there were two coups attempted coups in russia one to overthrow gorbachev and the other to overthrow yeltsin both were uh, uh, both failed and the uh, the uh, the police agencies that we were going to be dealing with the uh, the people who 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 became our contacts were those that didn't support the coups of course They were the the ones who stood down during these periods. So these were the people we were supposed to meet. Now, we we signed an agreement with the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Uh, That's, as you know, in Russia, there's only one police department. The guy writing a ticket in Vladivostok, traffic ticket, and the guy investigating a murder in St. Petersburg, they're 11 time zones apart, and they all belong to the same police department. There is about a couple hundred thousand police officers. And also, they have a National Guard component to put down internal unrest, like the war in Chechnya was not fought by the Russian army. It was fought by the, the Ministry of Internal Affairs. The police have military ranks, and the officers go to a, four, a four-year university or you know, on criminology. It's like going to Quantico for four years. They get a college degree. The officers that are not that are not officers, lieutenant and above, are mostly people who were conscripts in the Russian army without uh, college degrees, and they come in and their their careers are they can only become a sergeant, you know. They're on patrol, they're on traffic, but the the investigators and the people managing them are all uh, uh, officers uh, and above, and they interchange, believe it or not, with the Russian army. So you could be you could be uh, You know, end up uh, if you're a a, a colonel in the police force, going off to join the Russian army somewhere. If you think of all the government police agencies in the United States, and you put them all in one, that's what the Ministry of Internal Affairs was. They handled every crime, and they they were broken down into units. And our our uh, main liaison was the uh, organized crime control, white collar crime crime control. Cybercrime control. I don't know. Violent crime control. They were, they were. You know, like separate units. You know, we had to. You know, establish liaison with them all. The agreement was to work organized crime, money laundering, white collar crime, movement of nuclear materials, trafficking of, of people. There were a number of things stipulated that were within our. You know, our domain to work with them on. And, so uh,
0: this was definitely all on the criminal side and you weren't doing anything like counterintelligence or anything like that?
1: No, no but there was counterterrorism. No, 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 of course not. Director Free was pretty blunt that we didn't want us involved in anything that would get us thrown out or, or uh, ruin the main mission. Uh, that, that was the CIA's job over there, not ours. But then after we were there about three months typical Russian fashion, I got a phone call from uh, the FSB. And the FSB, of course, is the domestic KGB, Security Service of the Russian Federation, kind of arrogantly saying, how come we never called them, we never showed up? And, And I said, well, we were never invited. So they wanted to have a meeting with us. I was there alone by myself, I think, at that time. Now, the FSB, they handle major crimes that have an international nexus, like the FBI, basically. They, they handle, and they, of course, handle counter, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, all the things the FBI does, basically. But internal dissent also, and uh, also uh, anything but a foreign nexus. I, I want to also point out that Mike and I, you know, representing the FBI, were the first non-Soviet police representatives to land in moscow in other words our only colleagues were legats from uzbekistan tajikistan uh latvia estonia lithuania the, the, the former soviet republics so we were the the only western or foreign non-soviet uh, representatives there
0: so there was nobody there from the united kingdom or France.
1: yeah our initial counterparts were only the uh representatives of the from these agencies uh, that was it and as we as we were there as the years went by they'd always come to see us is it worthwhile can you trust the russians can you deal with them is the relationship working you know and they would eventually i think shortly after we were there the canadians came and the koreans and the japanese and then everybody was eventually there i mean almost everybody by the time i left
0: When it was still the Soviet Union, was there any type of FBI presence? No, that
1: was the Cold War, and uh, there wasn't, no. And the CIA at that time, I don't want to get into their business, but it's not classified, but of course they were not identified to the Russians as to who was who. But during our period, the chief of station worked with the Russians also on on some uh, liaison matters, so they knew who he was. And we did, too. I mean, they were probably the agency in the the embassy that we most closely, uh, socially and uh, work-wise, hung around with. So, But getting back to the the FSB, now, we didn't have a um, memorandum of understanding to work with them. But we went off, and I went off to meet them, and it was kind of, I'll describe to you because it was very interesting. I went down to the Ljubljana, which is the headquarters of the KGB, and... Lubyanka Square in Moscow, and uh, they escorted me up into a, a large room uh, that had been the office of uh, Yuri Andropov, uh, who was uh, kind of a hero there. He was the only KGB director to be, ever become uh, Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He followed Brezhnev. He didn't last long. He, he had some kind of cancer, but the room is, is a shrine to him. His statues are all over the place, and the, the 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 his diary is there. The last day, the day he died, and the clocks are all set the moment he died, and you know it's, it's like a religious shrine. But for the next five years, that's where I met them there, almost once a week. So even without a, the Justice Department was reluctant to get in a, a, an official, recognized deal with them because of the, the their history and. And also, what was going on in uh, in Chechnya? There was like a, the the Chechens were in, were trying to uh, secede, and the Russians had launched a scorched earth attack down there. So there was all kinds of horrible stories coming out of out of the Caucasus. But we did we did deal with them, and uh, we invited them several times to Quantico, and we had we had several major cases that we worked together, but. Nothing like the cooperation we got from the, the Russian police, the the KGB. I always I had to do all the uh, all my uh, liaison through their international section, where with the Russian police you drop off a case uh, from New York or Boston or somewhere, and they'd give it to a police officer, and the next minute he'd be calling, coming to the embassy to meet me, and we'd be working on it together. You know, we'd be telling them exactly what we needed, whereas with the uh, With the FSB, it was kind of one-sided. They were trying to get more out of us than we we were getting out of them.
0: Could you take a moment, because some people listening may not have any idea what the FBI, as as a law enforcement agency, does or is able to do in a foreign country. So when you talk about working cases together, could you go into that just in Uh, general, and then maybe we could talk about some uh, specific cases.
1: We did not do any work outside the embassy or outside their offices. It was all working with them on paper, telling them what we needed, who who we would like to see them interview, who we would like to see them uh, uh, investigate. That was it. They did it all. We didn't do any. One exception, almost every year, maybe more than once a year, an American missionary would be kidnapped over there. Most of them were evangelical missionaries who were operating in the Caucasus. They're not even supposed to be there by by Russian law you can't proselytize any religion except Russian Orthodox, Jewish or Muslim. They were operating kind of off the grid, but and they would inevitably somebody would get kidnapped by bandits who would want ransom from the church, you know. It wasn't terrorism or it was it was just kidnappers. And uh, what the Russians would do, uh, we, we, I went down several times to Chechnya and Gashedia, accompanied by Russian police officers or FSB agents, trying to encourage the local police to help find these guys or rescue them. This is hard to explain, but in Russia, this huge police department, it's not like the FBI, they you send leads. The, the The Russian, the Russians send a lead to Ingushetia or to Chechnya. Somebody's liable just to to throw it in the circle file. Nothing's done. It, it's not like when we think of the FBI. In fact, when I went down there, going from one republic like Dagestan, to Ingushetia to southern Ossetia, you go through border patrols and the KGB officers or FSB officers in Dagestan could not go into Ingushetia. I had to be picked up by a different gang at the border, Ruslam, Mohammed. It's hard to believe in the totalitarian state that that went on, but it did. But that was the only exception. The, uh, and I wasn't knocking on doors looking for these guys. I was just trying to, to convince the local police to do something, to get out and help us.
0: So if you could give us an example of the type of investigations or information that the FBI in the United States was seeking help from law enforcement in Russia, what kind of things were they? Were, okay.
1: With- well, first of all, the Russians had wiretaps on every hoodlum in the country. They're, they're <laughs> getting a, you know, a Pfizer surveillance over there is not a problem. It's just like pressing a button. And they had all kinds of information for us of these Russian mopes or hoodlums that were calling their counterparts in the United States. And they shared us with us some of that information. So it helped the guys in New York and Boston and some of Chicago and some of the other officers to identify who the Russian hoodlums were in their territory and who had been part of Russian organized crime groups in Russia that were now trying to organize in America. So it was uh, very helpful uh, in the beginning because a lot of it was, was new information for us. The first case, major case, of, uh, of, of where they helped us was uh, there was a, a girl kidnapped in, in, um, in Los Angeles, a young lady, I guess five or six years old. It was kind of a, of a, of a dispute between uh, the mother and a boyfriend. And the boyfriend came and took the kid and took the kid to Russia, the child. And so the courts in in California said that the child must be returned. And so the uh, Russian police located the guy and uh, put a you know a 24-7 surveillance on him for several, several weeks. In fact, they were, they were about to give up when they eventually got a lead as to where we could find the girl. So we returned her to her mother. That's an example there. That was a good one. And that was right in the beginning, a month or two after we arrived. On the Russian side, almost every major industry in Russia, I mean, arguably they have half the world's wealth and natural resources. So oil, gas, diamonds, bauxite, timber, and go on and on, there were thefts of over $500 million of these items. It was mostly internal corruption. People were looking the other way, and the stuff was just going out of the country. In many cases, it went to the United States. We had a case where over $500 million worth of diamonds were stolen and sent to the United States. Guys in the San Francisco office worked it, and we made arrests on the American side on tax evasion, but we had enough evidence to allow the Russians to uh, arrest the, the minister of precious metals and a bunch of other corrupt officials that were involved in it. And the gas it was the same thing. It, it was all moved to an organized, a Russian-organized crime group in Brooklyn that was selling the gasoline at gas stations. We arrested them, not on the, the fact that the, the gasoline was stolen, that they stole it. We arrested them because, to uh, show you how greedy they were, they, uh, they were selling it as gasoline for automobiles, but claiming they were selling it for heating homes. So there's a big tax difference. So we got the IRS got them out of tax evasion. They all got a, about 20 guys ended up getting about 20 years. <laughs> so you know, it's, it, it, I go on and on. The the amount, the things, I mean, the Russians, like I said, arguably they're one of the richest countries in the world in natural resources. And um, during the transition from state ownership of these properties to private ownership, the oligarchs, game the system, ended up, with uh, with all, the, it's like you and me owning Exxon someday. And what they would do is uh, then the idea is to turn the rubles into dollars and get the dollars out of the, out of Russia as quickly as possible. Most of it came through New York City, and most of it was invested in New York and and the United States and property. Or some of it went off to the Cayman Islands and other exotic places. But that that's what they were plagued with.
0: Now I understand why Yeltsin was so receptive. Of the FBI coming to Russia because they certainly were going to get a lot out of what the FBI could do for them back in the United States.
1: As the years went by, they got more and more out of the relationship than we did. I and mean, we got, you know, we, we didn't have that much that much work compared to them. I mean, they had a massive problem of their you know all their their family jewels were being stolen. You know, one one interesting you know, story uh, about uh, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, Yeltsin, for all his faults, wanted, he wanted to make Russia a democracy, capitalist country, and integrate it with the West. But his, his, his health and his drinking problems kind of obfuscated this whole uh, uh, movement. And he was surrounded by corrupt oligarchs who wanted to keep him in power to keep the corruption going. Okay. So, uh, the, uh, in 1996, he was running for president again, and he had almost zero support because of, of the, you know, the economy. Everything in Russia was going south. and But this is the first time the Russians had ever had a, uh, an election. Uh, he, he had been president of Russia during the Soviet period and was kind of appointed. Now he was running for office. The Russians didn't know how to run elections, nor did they know how to win them. And that's where, like, you know, all these people that are surfacing now, the oligarchs paid them large sums of money to come to Russia to show them how to conduct an election and how to win it. And, you know, like this gentleman, Mr. Manafort, he'd be like a perfect example of, of the group that went there. And then they realized, hey, we can, we can do this in all the post-communist countries that are having elections, you know, work as lobbyists there to help them win the elections. Did that happen? And, and Yeltsin, of course, won the <laughs> won the election in '96. Now, let me ask order. you a
0: question because I think for most people, there's an assumption that the elections are rigged anyway.
1: No, not in well, w- they had international monitors and everything there in Russia. People didn't know how to vote or didn't know what they were doing. They they never had an election in Russia in the history of the country from the from the time of the czars to the Commissars and it, it was just the first time. And uh, they might have taken advantage of just general ignorance, but they had uh, fair elections for governors and senators and everything over there. At least these international groups that came over and monitored said so. Now, with Putin, that's not the story. I'm sorry, I don't mean to confuse you. This was during the 90s.
0: All right. What about the people that were running all right. So the election, you know, process might be fair, but the people who were on the okay. ballot, who they were able to consider, was that some approval no, p- process for them no, to even get on the on the ballot? Ama-
1: amazingly, you had all kinds of political parties spring up. You had a women's party, feminist issues. You had the the, the Cedar Party, which was uh, environmental issues. You had you had a group called the Liberal Democrats, w- which were a fascist outfit, of course, and you know uh, nativist, extreme, uh, you know, uh, you had, uh, you had a democracy, a a democratic party, the uh, you had, uh, the communist party, of course, which was the the strongest still, uh, in in this period. But you, you, you had, I, I mean, I don't know how many political parties, but you had more than five or six that sprung up and put up a candidate. So, but now with, 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 uh, With Putin, he's done away with all these local elections and everything. And he has appointed as governors and senators, former military and intelligence people, basically. So we're going backwards.
0: Wow. Are these appointments, is there any election involved at all for these people?
1: No, there's no more elections for governors. There's 89 republics in Russia like we have 50 states, they have 89 republics and they're, they're appointed by Mr. Putin, President Putin. There are, there are not any anywhere near as many elections. I mean, he, he, was elected of course, but that, that, that was kind of a, uh, you know, he arrested all the opposition. So that, (laughs) uh, that kind of helps.
0: It does. It does. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet Putin one year over there? Well,
1: he, my my dates may not be exact, but in the latter part of 1998, after Putin put down the resurrection in in in, uh, in Chechnya once again, Yeltsin made him head of the FSB, which was one of the agencies I met on a regular, on a, almost a weekly basis. So he would drop into our meetings unannounced and on a, on a regular basis. Pretty much as an observer, because I think he was incredulous that the FBI was sitting in KGB headquarters discussing mutual cases of interest. And of course, you're going to ask me what I thought of him. I mean, I didn't, you know, he wasn't one of the boys. He wasn't one of the guys that I went out with afterwards for coffee or a drink. He came across as black and white. You know, he he hated criminals and terrorists and anyone who didn't like Russia. He was orthodox, I would say, very conservative, xenophobic. and a a nativist. I mean, so it's hard to explain this, but Russia is like the United States in a way. You got a lot of different nationalities and people from all different ends of the Russian empire. But in Yeltsin's mind, if you are not a pure Russian and a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, you're a second-class citizen.
0: Oh, that is extremely interesting.
1: And they, they were getting away from that during the 90s. There was more of a integration. And, and, you know, it, like if in Russia, they have a thing called a papuska, which means uh, where you live, you have a, a, a card which allows you to, to live there or live in that immediate area. That doesn't allow you to move to Moscow. You, you, know, like you and I could move to New York City tomorrow. People that live in the rural or other areas of Russia just can't move. They can't go where they want to. They have to get permission to go, and it's, it's very difficult to get permission to go to, uh, to Moscow. That's why you always see them locking up the usual suspects, but what they're doing that for is because they're in Moscow illegally. It's different.
0: Well, I want to know a little bit more about you and why you were selected for this position, because I would imagine that it was a sought-after assignment. I mean to be able uh, to be one of the first FBI people in Moscow, no?
1: I don't think it was. I wasn't the first choice. The first choice actually was a guy I recruited to join the Bureau years before. He was a Russian. He was from South America. He was our Legat in uh in San Diego, Chile. He was of Russian ethnicity and he spoke Spanish fluently fluently because he grew up in Latin America. Director Free asked him to go. And he, it's not a, it's not like going to, you know, Western Europe or someplace. It was, it was going to be a difficult assignment because of all the, you know, who knew if the Russians would even like us or want us, uh, you know, they were our enemy for so long. And this guy tried to tell Director Free that he'd like to live in Munich and work Russia as a road trip. So that was the end of him. (laughs) My name came up as being a, you know, I, I was at that time already Fifty-three years old, I think, and I spoke Russian, and I had worked Russian FCI most of my career.
0: Uh, where did you learn Russian?
1: In the Marine Corps. Oh, really? Yeah, and plus, I you know I was educated by Jesuits I had a lot four years of Latin and four years of three four years of French, so I had a a little bit of understanding of what languages are all about, you know. So
0: what you just said is very interesting because you said you worked. Counterintelligence, Russian counterintelligence, yeah. for most of your career.
1: Well, a good part of it. I worked in New York. You know, when I when I first started my career, I also speak Serbo-Croatian, and I was end up. I worked. This is. I think you're younger than me, Jerry. But we had this place in New York called Sutek, which uh, I ended up in uh, early in my career. I went to started out in Seattle, and went to to Chicago, and then to New York. And when I got to New York. They put me in this thing where I was just monitoring languages all day. I hated it. You know what I mean, mm, you know, yeah, I can imagine. I wanted, I wanted to be out working. Plus, I was a native New Yorker. I knew the city. I knew, and they they had a a big special where they wanted people to work twenty four seven and on a terrorism case surveillance. So I volunteered for it because a lot of other guys uh, didn't want to do it. I mean, I was single, I lived in the city. And I uh, yeah, I, it was it was easier for me. I had no commute. I ended up on uh, getting escaping from <laughs> from the dungeon, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, so. But then later on, I went back. I went to San Francisco and I, I worked on and I was a supervisor of the Russian counterintelligence squad. And then they transferred me to headquarters, and so I stepped off the desk. I didn't go back there, and that's, that's the status I was in when uh, when they were looking for somebody to go there. And it didn't. It also the, the guy they picked for Ligat used to work on my squad used to work for me. He probably put a good word in for me, too.
0: And did he speak Russian, too? Yeah. Okay, so that's that's, uh, definitely a bonus. I think the reason I'm surprised about this, though, is because, you know, if you worked Russian counterintelligence in the States before you went, they definitely knew who you were. They knew exactly who I was. And I can understand their suspicions (laughs) and their reluctance. Why are you here?
1: But you see, uh, back at that time... Almost anybody who spoke Russian worked Russian counterintelligence. There weren't many people in the Bureau who spoke Russian that weren't working Russian counterintelligence, unless they were older guys in, out in the, an RA somewhere. You know, most of the guys that spoke Russian were either in New York or San Francisco or uh, Washington, D.C. There were people who wanted to go. I mean, I just, uh, I think the fact that it was older, more experienced, they figured they'd take a chance on me.
0: Did you have a family
1: when you... Yeah, well, the fortunate part is all my kids, uh, three children were all in or out of college. So it's just my wife and I went over there.
0: Oh, so she was there with you the five
1: yeah. years that you were there? No, <laughs> not the whole time. <laughs> she, she was missing too many, too many funerals, too many weddings, too many graduations. So she was kind of a frequent flyer, you know, <laughs> back and forth.
0: Did she speak Russian? No, no. Okay. I could understand that because yeah. I would imagine, I mean she could she could associate with the other uh, when, Americans. When, when, when we were there for the first
1: tour, first 2 years, she had made a lot of friends, the spouses of other diplomats and people in the embassy. She really liked it. Then when we went back there, all those people had passed on, you know, been recycled out, and she didn't really have too many new friends, you know. It wasn't the same for her. She didn't have the same kind of support from a whole bunch of friends uh, the second time. And uh, but actually, she she hung around a lot with the Russian girls that worked in the embassy. You know, about eighty percent of the people working in the embassy are Russian natives, nationals. They're not allowed in the secure sections of the embassy. But I, I don't know if you remember recently when we had this uh, this flare up over. Uh, I can't remember the cause of it, but we we had to fire or. We, let all those people go about 600 employees of the American embassy in Moscow. So the, the people there now have to do everything on their own.
0: So they didn't replace them. It's, no. All right, well, so I can't
1: remember. Um it was either I, Obama or Trump. What well, was one of the. It, yeah, we, I think, uh, I
0: think we kicked out a whole bunch of people here. And so. Yeah. They, we They closed the consulate in San Francisco.
1: President Obama did something just before he, he left office. And then Trump did something. Uh, I don't know. Maybe more recently, there was somebody assassinated. There was some horrible thing the Russians did that precipitated it. Yes, guess, yes.
0: Guess. Now, yeah, I think we're both remembering. I think it was the the poisoning in the in the United Kingdom, and yeah. so in response to that, yeah, you know, yeah. we uh, we closed down one of the consulates here and sent everybody home, and yes. they retaliated. I, I,
1: I had a, a tremendous rapport with all the. I mean, I just I don't know if it's. Uh, my Irish background or what, but I got along tremendously well with them. And uh, they, uh, like me, I like them. And uh, a lot of them, you know, eventually sitting around talking, like one former KGB officer told me that, that, you you know, for me to be careful because in this country, he says, we have people who aren't happy with what's happened here in the last several years. You know, they think that maybe uh, Yeltsin was a a stooge of the United States and uh, that uh, they're actually... Arming, in other words, they're rogue, rogue guys that were with the KGB and the army that, that are capable of doing anything, and they were investigating these guys actively. So, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, had an insight into all that things that they normally wouldn't tell somebody else.
0: So, Did you fear I, for your life at any time?
1: Um, only. Do, do, <laughs> Yes and no. The uh, you know I, I I'm kind of a fatalist. Uh, they they came up with wiretaps. The guys in New York took down basically the whole Russian organized crime structure. They arrested all the guys that were involved after a couple of years of investigation. Be like taking out the Banana family or the you know one of the, one of the Italian gang gangster families. They arrested most of the guys in the family for extortion and and uh, and so. The Russians picked up a wiretap. Uh, you know, in Russia, when the cops make an arrest, they all wear masks. And I thought that was just for some psychological reason. But no, they don't want the, the bad peop- the bad guys to know who they are so that they don't retaliate against their families.
0: Wow. So they, pick,
1: they picked up a phone call, uh, two guys talking about they're going to have to retaliate against the FBI in New York. And they had the names of some of the agents, but they didn't know what they looked like because the names were in the paper or the affidavits and things. And then one <laughs> One guy said, well, wait a minute. That might be hard to do. You know, they've got a a couple FBI agents in Moscow. It might be easier to find them. (laughs) Wow.
0: So what did uh, you do when you heard that?
1: eh, Really nothing. I just kept a lower profile for a while, but I wasn't. Maybe I was foolish, but it it didn't slow me down that much. You asked me if I was ever afraid. Because I was the first guy there of the foreign police officers, we had a little organization. And uh, we adopted a, a Russian orphanage as uh, as a as a charity. And around Christmas time in '99, I think it was, I drove out to this place, and the nuns there insisted I stay for dinner and all, and so I didn't get out of this place till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And I was driving, and I got lost, and in the dark. Road, no lights, nothing. And I looked up and it was minus, minus 35 degrees. And I said, If this car breaks down, I'm screwed. <laughs> it's the end of me. You know? <laughs> I was out in the middle of nowhere. It's the only time I really had a pucker factor over there. <laughs> I got invited to a meeting of the tax police. Now, the tax police is like RIRS. And they just started this new agency because Russians had never paid taxes. They just were under communism. just Given money, poorly paid, no one ever paid taxes. The whole phenomenon of paying taxes was new to them and they resisted it. Nobody was paying taxes. And so they, they started this service, the, the tax police. So I was invited to the headquarters and I'm at a big table and we got coffee and cookies and we're sitting around the table about 12 guys who were kind of, I guess, section chiefs. And then the, the main guy talking to me, he's telling me all about the place and I'm talking to him. And then at one point I didn't understand something he was saying. And he, he says to me in Russian, do, do you understand it? And I said, do uh, you repeat it? <laughs> he said, then he repeats it in fluent English, okay? So I said, how do you speak English so well? You're, that's great. He says, uh, everybody at this table speaks English. This is Volodya, Kolya, Sergei, down the table, Ivan. I said, wait a minute, how come all you guys speak English? See, they were all KGB officers who were assigned abroad in Latin America and in Africa who were targeting Americans. And when the Soviet Union imploded, they could no longer afford to keep all these people out there under the diplomatic cover. So they kept their rank and they brought them back to Russia and gave them judge in the tax service.
0: Ah. Amazing. Now, so, I, and, and I'd like for you to explain for the listeners, I understand. But when you say targeting Americans in these well, other well, foreign well, countries,
1: like you, you've got, say, Nairobi, right? They're in Africa, there's an American embassy there. There's a CIA station, right? maybe even FBI league ad, I don't know. These guys are over, have jobs on the diplomatic cover in the Russian embassy. They're looking at what the Americans are doing in Africa or what the Americans are doing in Kenya. And likewise, that's what we're doing there. We were looking at what they were doing. This was during the Cold War. So the Russians could no longer afford to keep all these guys on the diplomatic cover. And they brought them back, they kept their rank, and they put them in this new service, tax service. As the years got by, I realized that, most of the uh, the tax cases they were targeting were American companies in Russia. So <laughs> nothing changed. <laughs>
0: uh, let's talk about that a little bit, because, you know, as you explain that you know, there's a lot of money flowing back and forth, you know, some of it from criminal enterprises, some of it from people just taking advantage of the capitalism. What part did you?
1: Yeah, I'll give you an example of the case we had. You hit it right on the head. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the idea is because of the, the, the weakness of the ruble, the idea is to get the ruble out of, uh, and turn it into dollars immediately and then get the dollars out of Russia. When I was there, they, they were all sending it through some banks in New York where they were, the bank would get you know uh, a quarter of a percent of the transfers of these monies from from Russia to the Bank of New York, say, and then to Cayman Islands or some other exotic place that that's famous for, you know, laundering money. Now we, we had this case where uh, the Russians had a case where two businessmen get in a dispute and in the absence of a rule of law, you know, there's no court you can go to. You, you have to resolve it yourself or you get a security company, you know, which is actually a kind of an organized crime group to go and intimidate. Them. So one Russian hires this group to go kidnap this guy and, Get fifty thousand dollars that he owes him. So they kidnap the guy and they 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 say you're not getting out of here until you give us fifty grand that you owe the other guy. So the guy has his family come up with the fifty grand, and the fifty grand is is uh, is sent to a bank in New York that they gave a bank number to them to send the money to. He goes to the police. The police come to me. Can you get the subscriber to this uh, account? So I, you know file all the papers and call the New York office and they get an affidavit and they get a you know a warrant to to look at the account. And a couple of weeks went by and they, I didn't get any response so I called my colleagues in New York and what's going on? And they said, "Well, we we started looking at that account and why we were examining it over the course of about a month or two, 14 billion dollars went through it. 14
0: billion. billion.
1: Now that is not all laundered money it's well in a way it is it's but there is honest money there that Russians make they got to get out of the country and also organized crime guys or you know all, all these oligarchs so uh, that that was just one account now i mean the, the, this the, the, this is what uh, yeltsin was talking about the clinton on way back when i was telling you about how they were they were they were just you know ripping off all these incredible companies there was one company called Nikolsk, which is uh, an, an started as a nickel mine up in the Arctic, and uh, it, it had revenues of about six to eight billion a year. But some guys bought it for three hundred million. So they were able to pay the loan off right away, and then the next thing you know, the profits they immediately wandered out of Russia. So th- this is what was going on there at that time. Wow, you know, a lot's been written about it.
0: You were telling me that you wanted to keep a, a low profile when you were in Russia, but I would imagine, you know, with the KGB, or what did you call them, the the FSB? FSB. The yes. S- with the FSB. It's
1: the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation. They, they renamed, because KGB is kind of a... Not a very nice name.
0: We'll still remember all the history behind it. But anyway, you're 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 there in Russia and the FSB, they know you because they know that you weren't mm-hmm. Russian counterintelligence in the States before you came. So I would imagine that they're following you and, and watching you all the time.
1: Yeah, but the only time I ever noticed them following me is uh, when I went on the road. I had a car and I drove everywhere in Russia. I mean I drove I even drove several times to to St. Petersburg from Moscow, you know, in about 400 miles, 500 miles. And I, you know, I, I traveled extensively within the country. We we had this program where I had about a $7 million budget for the Bureau had to uh, train Russian police officers in all kinds of sophisticated criminology stuff. But really, basically, there was a cover, just teaching them how to police in a democracy. That was the goal. We would have agents and police or different experts come to Russia and go out to these these kind of west points that the Russian ha- Russians had to educate their police officers uh, who were becoming lieutenants and above so i got to i got to visit oh places all over over russia i mean from yakuts to vladivostok to perm to kazanburg you know it just it was very interesting you know the weather in russia is a little different than california so i had to, I had to buy hats and gloves and I was always going in and out of places. I was always losing the gloves and losing the hats. You know, I was, I was <laughs> forgetting them, leaving them at restaurants, leaving them in someone else's office. And, uh, because I wasn't used to, to always having these cold weather uh, articles. So I, I don't know where I, I was, but I lost, uh, I think uh, uh, I was at, uh, up in St. Petersburg. And I had bought a nice warm hat when I went through Finland and I was wearing this hat, and I lost the hat. And about a year or two later, well, it wasn't, it was even longer. I was at the MVD Academy in Moscow. When it snows heavily in Moscow, people don't park on the curbs of the street because you get plowed in. You, you, they park in the middle of the street, believe it or not. So when I came out of this meeting with these guys, I got in the car, and there was something in the hood, and I got out, and there on the hood was my, uh, was my hat that I had lost a year or two earlier. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, so, somebody uh, wasn't just being kind. I think they were giving you a message. Uh, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah, the needle, you know, you know. So, in fact, I just received an award and in, inside, you know, a little plaque thank me. But my wife even had, you know, she uh she used to go with a couple of the girlfriends and they they go down the subway in Moscow with their cross country skis to go out to the parks. They have all kinds of huge parks and. I mean, you know, much bigger than Central Park. I mean, real big parks all over Moscow. And in the wintertime, people go cross-country skiing in them. And she was out there once or twice uh, skiing and got completely lost, turned around, you know, where she was. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes some guy, takes her back to to the subway station, (laughs) you know, out of nowhere, you know. So, obviously, she was being followed, too. Or or one of the girls she was with was being followed, you know.
0: How nice, you know. (laughs) (laughs) your uh, security spy or intel is also looking out for your best interest that's nice
1: i was walking in the last couple of days i was there, uh, there, there there was a house on the main on the garden road and there was an elderly lady i used to say hello to her all the time i see her outside sweeping you know and uh, she must have been in her 70s and i said uh, eventually i got to by facial recognition say hello to her and how are you blah 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 and so the night or the Two before I left Russia, I was walking back from the ambassador's residence to the embassy, and she's out in the street to snow it out, and she's brushing the snow off. And she sees me, and she drops the broom, runs over, and hugs me, and says, "Bill, Bill, you know my name. I'm so sad to hear you leaving." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, like, oh, so, how does so that, she
1: know? Yeah, well, obviously she's a watcher, you know, just keeping track of who's going, which way, when, who you with, you know. I mean, just like we do. So the next morning I was telling my Russian buddies that story, and they were all falling out of their chairs laughing, you know.
0: So you left in 1999 or 2000?
1: I say 2000, but I left December 31st.
0: And is there a particular reason that you left?
1: I was there five years. I had, you know, I'll tell you what. <laughs> My wife was back in the states, and she uh, very, you know, wasn't very enthusiastic about coming back. Director Free told me, I, you know, I was bumping up against being over age. What was the age limit? 57. Yeah, it was
0: fifty-seven. Right? 57. Retirement was. 57. I was. I was
1: already fifty-nine. Oh. So I felt, that he kept extending. He told me he would keep extending me there as long as I stayed there. You know.
0: I would consider that uh after everything you've told me a hardship assignment, so yeah, I mean we
1: were working twenty four seven to be honest with you and the and the language was a problem, not the Russians everything they gave me was was in uh, in Russian, so I had to translate it to English and then send it back to the bureau of mail the The stuff that the guys wanted some of the stuff I'd sent to the Russians in English if it wasn't that important, but important things if I wanted to get any return on it, I had to translate it to get myself, you know. So I spent an awful lot of time writing, rewriting. My ability to go from English to Russian written is not not that strong. It's non-existent now, but back then it wasn't that good. <laughs> it was like a child, you know, writing. But the, the, the Russian to English was no problem. I really enjoyed it. It was an incredible experience. And, uh, I, and I will tell you, the, the Russian's couldn't have been nicer. I didn't have too many bad experiences with dealing with them.
0: The week after this interview is going to be posted, I'm going to be speaking with Asha Rangappa. Do you know Asha?
1: No, but I've seen her on CNN, uh, right? She's right. A young lady That's at Yale or someplace.
0: Exactly. I've already talked to her, but I'm going to post her interview after. So you're going to kind of be the before and she's going to be the the now you know, as far as the FBI and and Russia. And I was just wondering, she will address that, but I'm just wondering what you're seeing, you know, you watch the news about Russian interference and the way that, you know, it is alleged that they're manipulating social media and news in order to create chaos in American democracy.
1: Sure. It's all terrible what's happening, but the only good part of this the silver lining is that the people are aware now of what the Russians always have been doing. I mean this is nothing new i mean this, this, this just now the difference now is they have the better technology and better able to do it. you know they were always trying to influence American foreign policy and american voters and in different ways but this the now with, with the internet and social media and everything it's uh, it may it's like <laughs> It's like a a godsend for the Russian intelligence services. They're uh, agents of influence stuff.
0: (laughs) So when it comes to Putin, you've met him, you've seen him in action. Is he a person that can be trusted?
1: Well, at that time, I thought he was. But now, you know, he's different. I mean, he's he's definitely a Russian nationalist. Like I told you about if you're not, uh, you know, he's he's a, a nativist for sure. He's xenophobic. He thinks that everybody's trying to get Russia, and he wants to project Russian power as he knew it under the Soviet Union. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that really feel that it's not so much that that Reagan outspent them on defense that caused their demise. There's a lot of people that that feel that Gorbachev and Yeltsin and all these guys were taken in by the United States and duped. And also, during this period, well, I was enjoying great success working with the Russians. The American embassy there and the, uh, our foreign policy, which was mostly out of the White House, not the State Department, we were kind of kicking the Russians while they were down and kind of dancing in the end zone type of thing. And this is all coming back to point us now. Good point. Like Putin, his rise to power is the most amazing thing in, in history. You know, nobody in Russia even knew who he was. He was just a, a factotum in the, uh, at the Kremlin. He was a nobody. Uh, someone recommended him to Yeltsin. Yeltsin made him head of the FSB, then made him premier, and then Yeltsin made him president. He, he was appointed president initially. Uh, and no one even knew who he was. There was no other competition. All the oligarchs around Putin wanted to make sure that somebody would take over that wouldn't disrupt the corruption and the harmony there this guy just comes out of left field. I mean, he wasn't a politician. He was was nobody. Next thing you know, he's the president of the country.
0: So why why did Yeltsin choose him?
1: The story is that he had promised he would not prosecute anyone in the Yeltsin family for all the corruption that went on during the uh, the 90s. Yeltsin's daughters had married guys. There was a lot of uh, Yeltsin himself did not live, live a rich life, but his, his offspring and kids did. (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of rumors that that they could have easily have been, uh, you know, indicted for, uh, for stealing or transferring large amounts of monies out of the country. That's the rumor. And that's what happened.
0: Uh, Nobody was indicted. No one was uh, convicted.
1: uh, Putin basically said to all these guys, listen, you do things my way or the highway. So the highway means that you you know there's been a number of assassinations abroad and you know that that case with the guy in the, in England I don't know who he was but he he was brought to, out of Russia with two other guys who were FBI recruits who I knew mm. who had been in Russian jails for about ten years. There were four of them released. Remember when we we, we gave them about ten illegals? You remember that case and. Uh, there was one attractive young lady named chapman who
0: was right there. oh i remember that uh, well, well
1: yeah well we gave them those 10 people and they gave us four two had been recruited by the british two had been recruited by the fbi out of new york these former kgb and former military who uh anyone who's a traitor it's like a green light to take them out just like this guy scribble in the, in england and the guy lieutenant Inkov, remember him and the guy with the polonium in england and you know, it's kind of like a, you know, Thomas Becket, who will rid me of this priest, Henry II. You know what I mean?
0: Mm. Putin
1: can. He, I don't know if he's ordering these assassinations, but he certainly could stop them. That's the type of guy he is.
0: <laughs> well, I am fascinated with your experience in the FBI and very curious as to what you did, you know, once you retired.
1: Well, I went to work in Albania as a contract employee to set up organized crime directorates to stop the trafficking of women. It was mostly Slavic women from Belarus, and Moldova, and Ukraine. The organized crime elements got their hands on them, some wittingly, some unwittingly, and they moved them through Albania to Italy. Every night they had these uh, boats that would take about 50, 60 people, trafficking people, not only young ladies. The money was, most, was for that, basically. But they were trafficking people, and there's, a, there's a, a short distance between Italy and Albania, 30 miles or so across the, the Adriatic, where at night a small flotilla would take off. And these people were, were hidden and housed and everything in, in, uh, in Albania. So we try to set up, just like the Bureau does it, a Bureau-organized-crime squad. In those countries, nobody investigates organized crime. They only you know investigate reactive crime. Someone robs a bank, someone murders someone. But things like trafficking of people where there's no complaint, we, we, we set up uh, you know, small squads and the United States financed it. I did that for a, a close to a year or less. I mean, I was in and out. I was there a month in, a month out. The problem is in these countries, you get a new president who brings in all his corrupt brother-in-laws, corrupt and illiterate, to, to run these agencies and you're back to square run. It's a funny story there, the, uh, the police chief who I was working with for Albania, uh, he was a political appointee, and we used to drive from one town to the other, Ukrainians gave the Albanians a Russian helicopter and, as a gift or something, and this guy wanted to, he was going to use this helicopter and wanted me to fly around in it to the different outposts. That was it, I, I quit. I wasn't kidding. (laughs) I mean, Albania is a place where the the most modern thing they show you is a Roman, something the Romans built. (laughs) uh, Some Albanians maintaining a helicopter. I wasn't going to get in it. I was into
0: that. No, thank you. No, thank you.
1: So then I went to work for a company. There's a group called the American Society of Industrial Security, as is. They asked me to give a speech. I had to fill in for someone else who couldn't who couldn't give a speech at one of their dinners. I reluctantly did it for another agent that was involved in this group. And uh, so while I was at this dysfunction, somebody approached me who was the president of a security company, Guardsmark. He asked me if I'd like to work for him. <laughs> so uh, I said no, because I was finally had again passed a, uh, a polygraph and all to get get my security clearances back. And I was heading back that weekend to Washington to work at the Russia desk of the, the, the CIA called Russia House. And uh, my wife found out this guy was offering me a lot more money and I didn't have to move to Washington.
0: So no. she squashed that deal, huh? She
1: squashed that deal. She said, what are you crazy? This guy is going to pay you all this money and you don't have to relocate to Washington. I mean, I was just going to rent an apartment somewhere in Virginia. But I became a, you know, one of the senior vice presidents. They had about 20,000 employees, and they took about 600 million a year in revenue. One time or other, I ran the company's interest in California, New York, not Rocky Mountain regions, but most of it. And I was working out of San Francisco, but I had to do one week a month in New York City. So uh, I did that for about 12 years and then finally retired recently.
0: So finally, you're just relaxing? I just read a lot, walk a lot.
1: I have a home up here in Oregon where I'm sitting now. Oh, nice! On a golf course. I don't play golf. I have two big dogs, and we're going out for a walk in a few minutes.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I like to give my guest the last word. What would you like to say?
1: I don't have a lot of contact with the. the fact fact, I don't have any contact with people who are now working for the FBI. But I, I'm really upset over you know what's happened. In the last year or so i feel that one fbi directors should keep a real low profile and shouldn't be giving speeches or anything but also the uh, the administration should be supportive and uh, not i mean they don't realize that there's juries and there's uh, witnesses all over the country that fbi agents interview and talk to every day that uh, being maligned in the press I and mean, it doesn't help it just hurts me it really hurts me to just to see what's what's been happening you know, the good news is you still see a lot of arrest and convictions. And I, I, I'm sure they're doing their job. Nothing's changed there. I mean, you know, we, we have the culture. Just the way we've been attacked for unfounded reasons bothers me.
0: And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Bill. There's a link to a fascinating newspaper article titled Old Habits Die Hard, the FBI and the Russian Security Services. And there's several quotes from Bill Kanane. If you enjoyed this interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week, but I did want to share something with you. A friend from high school's sister died recently, and I sent her a sympathy card, and she sent me a lovely email back, letting me know that when they went through her sister's belongings, that she discovered that her sister had purchased and read both of my books, and it just blew me away. I wish I had known that while she was still alive, So, I want to take this time to make sure that I say thank you to those of you who have picked up a copy of Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. You don't know how much it means to me. There are so many of you who have written some wonderful reviews on Amazon.com about how much you enjoyed them. And so, let me take this time to say thank you. And don't forget, they make great holiday gifts. And talking about books, I want to congratulate retired agent Jeff Reinick, whose book, In the Name of the Children, An FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators, just received a fabulous New York Times review. Congratulations, Jeff. It sounds like the book is doing great. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com the only online directory made available to the general public, featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.